0: we um you survived the storm well done that like 25 seconds of hail the other night like caused a little bit of panic probably but you made a good job um we are drawing to the end of our series on wisdom, and and hopefully, you know, I mean, that focus at least, right, that certainly wisdom should undergird all of the messages as we open God's Word. We are coming to it with this hunger and this appetite to become wise, and um, do you feel wiser? How many of you? Hey, here's the truth. If you feel humbler... <laughs> Then you've become wiser. That that's, that's what this is supposed to do. That I think so often it's a revealing of, of what we don't know is, is kind of the way that we become wise. Entering into a life of dependence on God. This is what the wise do. We talked about last week that prayer in Proverbs 30 where he says, Keep lies far from me and give me my daily bread and i love how wisdom has this clean sort of simplicity to it but but the truth is it's it's simple in the best way it's not overly simple it's it's distilled down to its essence I like how Proverbs says that if we're building a house wisdom is like the foundation knowledge the thing is the thing that adorns it understanding is the thing that gives it its like sort of stability and structure the base the foundation is wisdom and so we give it its primary importance we focus on that thing it's the thing that undergirds it's the thing behind the thing so often and as we're coming to the end of this, I thought, I, I want to talk, you know, just make sure there's some things that we don't miss here. And, and one of those that I want to talk about today and focus on is, is the wisdom of simplicity. And simplicity isn't often what might come first to mind when thinking about knowledge or thinking about wisdom. But, but the truth is that there's a texture to wisdom that is simple in the best form of the word. And I think about this, The value of simplicity really was discovered in many ways by this Franciscan friar in the 14th century. His name was William of Ockham. And he came up with this phrase. I'm going to read it for you. It's probably not going to make any sense, but I'll unpack this short little thing. He says, entities are not to be multiplied without necessity. Entities are not to be multiplied without necessity. This became known as Ockham's razor and there's no science without it. He's basically saying there's a tendency on our parts to overcomplicate matters or choose the most complex answer when in fact the answer that is most likely true, most often true, is the simplest one. That there's a million, an infinite number of different theories that exist within science. How do we choose? Discernment says the simplest answer is the right one. Now, not overly simple, but that right amount of simple. And the discernment of wisdom knows the difference between the two. You've heard me use this example of um, in Greek mythology of this guy Procrustes, right? If you heard me talk about this, he, he makes beds. And in, in mythology, he's, he makes these beds exactly to fit you. And what he does is he lays you down on his bed and chops your feet off. <laughs> Now, to, to make a mistake like Procrustes, right, this is to oversimplify things, like, and we live sort of in this world of these kind of two opposing, um, dangers here, either to overcomplicate things or to oversimplify things. And discernment knows right where that line exists. And growing into this is part of the goal of the spiritual life to grow in our ability to discern truth and to know it, to see through the over complexities and conspiracies and paranoias over here, but to not take it and distill it down to something too small where it loses its feet, (laughs) loses its essence. And Jesus was the master, I think, of distilling truth, of boiling it down to its purest form without losing the depth This is what wisdom does. And in John 17, 3, he says this. This is eternal life. Right? You you can imagine like a pause right there. This is eternal life. And you're like, what is eternal life? And he says this, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That bit... If Jesus is who he says he was, and he's speaking from the other side, bringing us heavenly wisdom, and he says, this is it, here's the point, is to know God and to know me. What does that mean? And I think when we understand wisdom, like we understand this capacity for us to act according to what our beliefs should be, but knowledge, knowledge, I think, is, is something where we often don't have a robust enough understanding of knowledge as well. We turn knowledge into data, but the truth is, Scripture never uses knowledge exclusively as information. That knowledge is always, throughout Scripture, a sort of relational interaction. To know God is not to know about God. That's important, to have correct beliefs about God. Important, But the knowledge of God is this intimacy. Jesus will say about different groups, I don't know them, right? And what does he mean? Not that he doesn't know about them, because certainly he doesn't created them, but he's saying there's a missing relationship here. And the wise are going to keep this bit of knowledge first and foremost in their lives. This is the thing to seek above all else. The knowledge of God is where eternal life is. This is the thing that we pursue at all costs. This is what the wise do. And the truth is, as we pursue this thing, it changes us, it shapes us. The way of wisdom is a way of growing and transforming into a greater and greater capacity to know God. There's something in us that's wired towards this sort of inward self-serving, and that thing has to get broken And if it doesn't, we remain in our foolishness. It's it's been said that all of us will grow old, but not all of us will grow wise. It's a choice that we make. It's decisions that we make. It's ways that we live out this life. I was thinking about this this last week. We had Ash Wednesday on this past Wednesday where we enter into a time of repentance. God, search my heart. It's to me such a beautiful time of confession. And we go into a 40-day period in preparation for Easter where we lay aside the things that we've grown too dependent on. Why? So that God can be first and foremost in our life. And I almost read it on this last Wednesday, but I didn't. But I'm always reminded of the Isaiah 58 passage. Because as we think about fasting, it's so easy for us to see it as kind of an inward journey. God, I'm taking this time to fast. In Isaiah 58, he's like, you know what I really want? I want you to serve the poor. Right? That a fast and a getting our hearts right, so important, entering into a time of preparation, so good, but if it's not manifesting itself in an outward generosity towards the world, and God's love being shown to others, it's misdirected. We've lost the essence of the thing. And wisdom is about bringing us back to that point of clarity, understanding what is at the heart and living there. That's the invitation. And as we do, we grow and we mature. It's a passage I've read before, but I love in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. Paul writes this. He says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, by the way. That's what we've signed up for. That it's this growth into unity as a church, into a deeper understanding and knowledge of who God is, becoming mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's the simple truth, right? And we're going to spend the whole rest of our lives trying to understand the depths of what that means. But too often what we do is is we create a, a sort of Understanding of salvation that loses sight of that deep intimacy with God. And what I mean by it is we turn it into a way of like getting into heaven or avoiding hell, right? This like sort of deal that we make with God, like what's the goal? Well, I want to avoid hell. Sure, like that's smart. Yeah, like, but, but that's a piece, right? I want to be forgiven. Amen. But Jesus is saying, this is way bigger than that, right? This is about abundant life. This is about knowing me. This is about intimacy with God. That's what you'll spend eternity doing. And to be honest, it's a little bit different than what I was taught. I was the kid, like in vacation Bible school, raising my hand every time going like, hey, if it didn't stick last time, like I'm in, right? Right. Um, I must have done that probably a hundred times just to make sure that I had done it right. And, and I think, honestly, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, right? But, but the truth is, to grow in my faith is to grow into a deeper and deeper understanding of just what salvation means. I remember hearing this quote from Billy Sunday, who was a revivalist, and he said, the best thing you could do is like hit the sawdust trail, which was like to come forward at a revival, fall on your knees, receive Christ, then walk out of the tent and get hit by a truck and go straight to heaven. (laughs) I mean, he's got a point. Paul often said, oh, I just wish I could be in heaven, right? But Jesus didn't teach that, right? He taught about living, How desperately we need to become wise and live out that wisdom and to help others become mature. How we need to grow to become more and more like Christ. That is this journey of faith. That's the fullness of this. And the truth is God so wonderfully walks through us each of these kind of different stages of our faith so patiently. We've talked about how God is easily pleased but not easily satisfied. I was thinking of this. We we took somebody this week. My my family we like to go to a rock climbing gym and do that together. And um, we brought somebody who was climbing for the first time. And um, this person was fit, you know. So like, here you go. Here's the climb. Go, and he just goes like m- like a monkey up this thing, right? And and we're like, yes, it's so good, right? And inside, I'm thinking, you did everything wrong, right? And yet, wow, this is your first time, he's like kind of nervous, he's climbing up high, he's kind of spooked, and you're like, way to go, man, way to face your fears, that was awesome. Maybe next time, slow down a little bit, like place your feet a little bit more carefully, right? You're like, all upper body, learn how to use your legs, your form's all wrong. But what you did was so good. And I think this is often how God is with us. Right. We come out and we make our huge gestures or we try as hard as we can to please God. And I think God is patient to go. Good job, Jeff. That's so sweet. (laughs) Like we'll work on that. But I I see your heart and I love it. Like good effort. Good effort. And, And this, I think, is important because this is how God's grace works. Right. As we're growing in maturity, I think God is incredibly patient with us. But he's also saying, there's more. There's more for you. And I think our lives are set up in such a way that it reflects that more that God sees. I love this quote from Lewis in letters to Malcolm. He says, have we any reason to suppose that total self-knowledge, if it were given to us, would be for our good? Children and fools, we are told, should never look at half-done work. And we are not yet, I trust, even half-done. You and I wouldn't, at all stages, think it wise to tell a pupil exactly what we thought of his quality. It's much more important that he should know what to do next. And see, I say this because I think this is all of us in this sort of half-done, becoming wise. All of us are in this sort of class, this school of God's love, teaching us how to love God more and more, to know God more and more. And God's cheering us on as we go, but constantly pushing us towards the next thing. The wise stay in this humble, teachable place and learn and grow. And as we do, we go through different stages of our development and in 1st John chapter 2 12 through 14 i think john kind of identifies these as like three different stages of our spiritual growth and he uses these i think metaphorically as children and young men and as fathers and he says i'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake i'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the Word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. And this, to me, is the path to maturity. There's this... Young child stage, which is sweet. It's forgiveness. It's intimacy. It's beautiful. If you've met somebody who's come in and experienced that for the first time, it's glorious. It's just this warmth. It's this lightness. It's this peace. But that stage is a stage and you will grow from there into another stage. And in this stage, the young men, is this stage of bravery and courage, standing up for the word and for truth, overcoming the evil one. You kind of go into battle at this stage. The battle against temptations, the battle against the passions of the world, the battle against the things that sort of entice you away. But there's a stage beyond that this sort of elder stage. And I love how this is the stage of perspective that looks back and remembers who it was from the beginning. This is, to me, the arc of wisdom, and there's a simplicity in that stage that you don't get unless you've gone through the others. You've heard me mention this quote, but it's like one of my favorite ones um, where Oliver Wendell Holmes talks about Who cares about the simplicity on this side of complexity, right? He says, I wouldn't give a fig for that, but I would give my life for the simplicity on the other side of complexity. What's he talking about? He's talking about a wisdom that has gone through the storm. He's talking about a wisdom that's gone through the complexity, through the suffering, through the difficulties of life and emerged on the other side in this beautiful sort of mature simplicity, not oversimplified, not chopping the feet off, but distilled down to its essence. This is somebody who through their life has discovered even more what this knowledge of God is all about. And it's the invitation, Jesus is saying, this is the way to life, to understand and know that that's everything. And you know, I've been mentioning this as we've been going through a series on wisdom. Part of the reason for this is I think that wisdom is so often in short supply. That if we were really doing this right, you would walk into churches and find the room filled with Wisdom but I think just showing up to church, just going through the motions of this or just focusing on beliefs doesn't necessarily cultivate this kind of growth in us. We have to give ourselves to this idea. And I think so often we can almost overly admire the earlier stages of discipleship and fail to see the value of the elder and the sage and becoming wise We're drawn to the battle. We're drawn to the fight. And we should. It takes courage. It takes bravery. So much is proven in that. But there's a different sort of fight that emerges in this later half of life. I think of this with David in mind. David, who as a young man and as a young person that's been anointed king goes into battle with the giant. And he overcomes. He stands up in such bravery and courage. But for David to be ready to become the king, he ends up running into the wilderness, avoiding Saul who is pursuing him, hiding in a cave, only to find himself there with his enemy, right at his mercy. And what David does in that situation, if you recall, as Saul is in that place, he goes down and he cuts a piece of Saul's robe off. And then shows it to Saul later. It says, look at what I could have done, but didn't. See, there's a different wisdom, isn't there, in these battles. The first is one about stepping in with courage. But the second battle is about restraint. It's about trust. It's saying God has put this man Saul on the throne and I won't take his crown until God ushers in the right time. And that kind of wisdom to me is in short supply. The wisdom of restraint, the wisdom of humility, the posture of that. And scripture is there to teach us how to do this. It's part of why scripture can be so complex at times. It's teaching us to wrestle with the deeper truths. And some have said, gosh, it seems like in places that Scripture contradicts itself. And, and, and the truth is, what it does, and does this with intentional, intentionality, is it creates paradox. It creates scenarios where we have to wrestle with it. We have to wrestle with ourselves as we read it. Here's one of my favorite ones. This is Proverbs 26, 4 through 5. It says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So what's the answer? (laughs) So you do or you don't? The answer is yes. Always makes me think of that line from Tolkien where he says, never ask an elf for advice because he'll tell you yes and no. And this is the truth that like... Solomon is saying, do you or don't you? Well, yes and no. That in these situations of life, it's complicated. And it doesn't do us any good to ignore the complexities of life. We have to wrestle with them. And one of the things that we realize is that by rebuking a fool and his folly, that there's a part of ourselves that becomes incredibly vulnerable when we do. But do we answer a fool? The answer is yes. If we don't, he becomes wise in his own eyes. That the wise are there to give correction, but to do it in such a way that's going to generate the right sort of fruit, the right result. But there's a warning. What's the warning? That when you do enter in, you become sort of your own worst enemy. That as you come in and rebuke somebody, your own self-righteousness can so easily become engaged. Have you ever done that? Have you ever told somebody something and you were so right? You were like, honestly, like this is the right answer. But then something in you just gets mean or turns cruel. that just cares about winning this argument instead of the truth being shown. And sometimes when we go into battle, we go in with this sword where Peter, we're like swinging. We just want to fight something. And the the truth is what comes out of us is foolishness. As we step in and try to be wise, we reveal that we're a fool. So caution. The wise are cautious. But there's also an even wiser way to me to read this. Maybe not wiser, but it's part of the wisdom. See, when I read a passage like this, I immediately like to think of myself as the wise person giving advice. It's written that way. But what if we're the fool? What if we're the one in need of rebuke? And to think about it all of a sudden from that flip side... This is hard, but this is what the wise do. They learn how to let conviction speak to their hearts. That we will remain in our folly as long as we resist wise counsel. When people come in and speak rebuke, how do you respond? If you're like me, you respond with defensiveness. You justify yourself. I've become very good at this, defending myself. That thing, that part of me that wants to go into battle wants to fight and defend for my own ego above all things. There's a disarming road that we follow here with wisdom. Laying down those areas of self-righteousness and admitting our potential blind spots. This is what the humble do. I remember there was a time... Sorry about this, Patty. But there was a time where Patty was, like, growing like crazy. And um, and if I'm honest, after a while, I was so threatened, which is so stupid, right? Like, shouldn't I, as her husband, just be cheering her on? But I was kind of going, like, this is changing everything, and we kind of had this figured out. We kind of knew our lanes, and everything was working, and now you're growing, Right? (laughs) And I was reading this book at the time that I I love this book. I've endorsed it a few times. This Stephen Pressfield wrote this book called The War of Art. And as I was reading through it, it said, If your spouse is intimidated by your growth, the only thing you can do for them is to keep growing. I was like, that's so stupid. One thing to read that is the one who's growing. That feels really good. Thanks, Stephen. But like, what if I'm the other guy, right? And you're like, oh. And and here's the thing. Like, I think the wise acquire a taste for that. That that is a good thing. When I get uncomfortable like that. To go, oh, this is, this is the road. (laughs) This is the way through the complexity to the simplicity on the other side. I let it speak to the areas where I'm blind or I'm choosing to remain blind. Let it speak to my ego and letting it do battle there. Because in order for me to love God like I'm designed to, that part of me has got to die. It's got to diminish that thing that clings to my way. The way to that point is in the wrestling, and the wrestling feels uncomfortable, but what it offers on the other side is freedom. And we all want to find a shortcut to that wrestling, don't we? And, and this is what I really like about Lent, is Lent, Lent is representative of this passage where Jesus goes into the desert. It's 40 days in the desert. It's preparation. It's a time of laying aside things, laying aside the comforts. We know that Jesus goes into that place and does battle against the devil there. Remains in his humility and remains in this place of trust. And he doesn't go in accidentally. It tells us that the Spirit leads him into that place. And so often I think this is what God is doing in our lives as well leading us into some of these desert places. Because what happens there is this purifying of our heart, this purifying of our will. That the lies that we tell ourselves, the blind spots that we hold onto so tightly, become revealed and disarmed. Lies like, I am what I have, or I am what I do, or I am what other people say about me, right? These ways of defining ourselves these ways of creating an identity that we think is valuable. And Jesus is saying, as long as we're caught up in that sort of self-love, we cannot receive his love, not fully. But those lies have to be exposed. And this is, again, what happens in this place of wrestling. This is what the wise do, is they let God's truth come in and reveal. Like our passage last week, let lies be far from me. I love this from Henry and He says, first of all, you have to keep unmasking the world about you for what it is, manipulative, controlling, power-hungry, and in the long run, destructive. The world tells you many lies about who you are, and you simply have to be realistic enough to remind yourself of this. Every time you feel hurt, offended, or rejected, you have to dare to say to yourself, these feelings, strong as they may be, are not telling me the truth about myself. The truth, even though I cannot feel it right now, is that I am the chosen child of God, precious in God's eyes, called the beloved from all eternity, and held safe in an everlasting belief. Amen. Right? And this is the thing. This is what John's telling us is he's going, the fathers remember this. That when you first come to faith, You encounter this beautiful love that you are God's child and then you grow in to your faith and you take up your shield and you go into battle. But then you remember again in all of that as you're disarmed by God that you really are still to this day just that child. That maturity, that the simplicity on the other side of complexity is that we live our life in this deep sense of trust in who God is and who He says that we are. That our love is not based on our ability to fight battles, it's based on the fact that we are His beloved child. The victory of David when he defeats the giant is profound but where he refuses to take power into his own hands. Even deeper wisdom, I think. And as we do this over and over through our lives, as we live in this place of trust and surrender, our hearts soften. We change. Little by little. This is what the life of discipleship is like. And I wish there were shortcuts. I wish there was a fast way to do this, to like skip ahead or get through the complexity without really having to go through it. But... And the truth is, it's not. And Jesus tells us this, that you have to take up this cross. This is this road to wisdom that we should consider it joy when we go through difficulties because this is doing a deep work in our hearts. I read this quote by Richard Rohr. I may have given this to you before in the past, but he says this, in the first half of life, we fight the devil and have the illusion and inflation of winning now and then. In the second half of life, we always lose because we are invariably fighting God. The first battles solidify the ego and create a stalwart, loyal soldier. The second battles defeat the ego because God always wins. No wonder so few want to let go of their loyal soldier. No wonder so few have the faith to grow up. The ego hates losing, even to God. And it's an interesting idea. You think of Jesus going into the wilderness and facing the enemy there. But probably the most significant and triumphant moment of all Jesus' life on earth is his moment in that garden where he says, not my will, but your will be done. This beautiful surrender. This is the wisdom of the sage. The one who says, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus is saying that is the way to abundant life. That is the way to freedom. And it's counterintuitive, isn't it? We think that the way to it is to possess something rather than to be emptied of something. But wisdom is this posture of trust. There's no better example to me in scripture than the book of Job where Job lives in this place of questions and has so much taken from him. All his friends tell him he's the one to blame. It's his fault. He did something. And, and Job's like, I'm pretty sure I haven't, but I don't understand what's going on. But that book ends with such a beautiful verse where he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes sees you. That Job, even though he gets to the end and still is filled with questions, finds God in the midst of that storm where God comes and meets with him there. And the truth is this is what this knowledge looks like. This is what intimacy with God looks like. And, and I don't know about you, but this is where for me I've always experienced the most intimacy with God is in places where I'm fragile in places where I feel like I'm stripped, (laughs) in places where I feel such dependence. And the way God meets with us there in that place is something so gentle. And I love that this presence of God when it comes, comes with peace. It draws near. It feels warm. If I had to come up with a metaphor for it, I would say it's like I just picture a cat sitting in the warmest place in the house. Finds that sunniest spot and just stays there. In those times in our life, I don't think we get to just remain in that place. And yet, at the same time, Jesus is telling us that eternal life is to have that within us, that that peace of God dwells within us, which is why the wise have this strong foundation. They're at peace. They walk in confidence of the fact that they are loved. That whatever comes, any of the difficulties of life are temporary. And that even those God can take and use to create deeper depth, deeper intimacy. And this allows us to sort of decommission this soldier in us that is always going into the fight. That sees everything as a battle, right? And in that posture is able to then speak to this fool in their foolishness with a sense of deep empathy and love to speak truth in such a way that is received. Peter learns this, and he tells us, Be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you, but do it with gentleness and respect. That's wisdom. That's how you rebuke a fool. With gentleness and with respect, giving a reason for the hope that's in you. And the wise live in this place of dependence and see God show up again and again, which builds this deep sense of security even in the midst of the storm. And this is what God wants from us. He wants our faith. He wants our trust. That when life gets hard, we yeah, don't waver. That when life gets difficult, we're able to stay present there. And I don't know about you, but I struggle so much with that. I hope I last longer than I used to. But but so often in my life, I think it's just about the point where I lose it, that God shows up and provides an answer. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Sorry that I lost it. Sorry that I lost my faith. And I think that God goes, it's okay. Like, you can do better, but um, but it's okay to grow in this capacity to trust, to remember. These are what the fathers do. These are what the mature in Christ do. They say that prayer, not my will, but your will be done. And I think in all of this, talking about wisdom is to cast vision for this for us, that we as a church would become wise, that we'd be giving ourselves to this deep work that God is doing. Setting ourselves free, letting us understand how deeply we're loved, and then giving us the ability to take that love to others, to help others in their growth, others in their maturity, whatever stage you find yourself in today. In my questions, I said, What stage of your faith journey do you find yourself in? Are you aware of what God is desiring to show you in this season of your journey? Are there questions you can take to God in prayer? And some of you may be like new believers and just come in and you're like, oh my gosh, the forgiveness of God. And you're like, yes, celebrate that. For some of you, you're like, "Ah, I'm in the midst of the fights. And you go, go, hang in there, persevere. But for some, you're in the midst of this where God is saying, trust me, let go of that. And the second question, is there a part of yourself that needs to be decommissioned? How can you honor that loyal soldier and also release him? Does that make sense? This part of yourself that fights, right? The part of yourself like Peter that grabs the sword. How how do you let that go? And I like this idea of a decommissioning, right? That you go, it's giving that person permission. That's no longer the way we're battling this. Welcome back to civilian life. (laughs) And lastly, Where do you find it difficult to really trust God? And with what? Is it finances, world events, relationship, family? How is God inviting you into a simpler way forward? And this beauty of wisdom is this invitation into this simplicity, into this place of trust, this place of rest, this light burden, and this easy yoke. I thought I would... um, Read a verse over us as we close, but um, why don 't you stand and if you would like prayer we 've been kind of keeping the door shut up here and keeping this area just sort of quiet for prayer for anybody that would like prayer we 've got food out on the patio by the way, and continue to have good coffee out there, so enjoy that. but um, this is a prayer of paul 's from Colossians in which he links together maturity, the knowledge of Christ. And the dwelling within ourselves, he says this. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given me for you. To make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known great among the Gentiles the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And may God work within each one of you. May Christ in you continue to shape you into maturity. Let it make you wise. May it make you shine like light to this world. Amen.